0: in didn't
2: know why is light so far like it sounds so
3: simple they had no idea but now the data speaks p- i find this not only refreshing but but at some level astounding nature
0: welcome back to the nature podcast This week, we find out about a very peculiar dwarf planet and take a look at how DNA sequencing has transformed biology.
4: Plus, the grieving family is contributing to a huge genetics project. This is the Nature Podcast for October 12th, 2017. I'm Adam Levy.
0: And I'm Charlotte Stoddart. First up, we're looking at a bundle of papers out this week from a big genetics project known as GTEx. Here to tell us more is Sharmini Bundell.
5: The Human Genome Project, which started in 1990 and took over a decade to complete, aimed to map out a full human genome. Obviously, every person's DNA is different, but sequencing a complete genome was a vital step in understanding how our genes make us who we are. Some papers from another big project are being published this week. It's called GTEx, which stands for the Genotype Tissue Expression Project. And its aim is to map out gene expression. In other words, how the DNA is expressed as RNA to find out which genes are active in different tissues across the body. Studying the DNA alone is valuable, but the RNA can provide a different part of the picture, particularly when it comes to links between genetics and disease. I got reporter Ewan Calloway into the studio to tell me a bit more.
6: Scientists have done a fantastic job at finding tens of thousands of DNA letter variations that differ between people that increase their risk or protect them from diseases. The problem is is that a lot of these variants that are linked to disease, they're not in genes that make proteins. They're in these so-called non-coding regions. And what we think is that these non-coding regions are influencing the expression of genes, sometimes in different tissues or in particular tissues. So GTEx is trying to connect these dots between the human genome project and the biology of disease susceptibility, which is what we really want to understand if we're going to come up with cures uh, or treatments for diseases.
5: So if you're going to sequence a bit of DNA um, you know, you can extract it and work out what the order is. When, it's talk- when you're talking about gene expression, you kind of want a snapshot of what's being expressed at a particular moment. And that was that's, that's really hard to get, isn't it?
6: So the idea is, is to get a readout of what a cell is doing, you need to look at these RNA molecules. Problem is, they break down really quickly. They're not super stable in many cases. So as soon as a cell dies, as soon as a cell stops getting oxygen, which happens really quickly after after somebody passes away, these RNA molecules start breaking down. Um, so you need to find a way to collect them as quickly as possible after death if you're going to get an accurate snapshot of what uh, what genes are active in that tissue.
5: And, and in this GTEx project, they did need uh, samples from dead donors. They needed to be able to take tissue you wouldn't be able to take from a living person. So how did they kind of arrange that?
6: Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, they looked at, I think, up to 44 different tissues across... 960 people, nearly 1,000 people. So yes, it necessitated going to deceased donors. And what the researchers who were leading this project did was they worked with organizations that procure organs for transplants, so people who sign up to be organ donors. And if somebody was an organ donor and, and they had passed away, in some cases they would ask their next of kin, their family, would you be interested in participating in this GTEx project? Here's what it's about.
5: One such family member who was approached about the project is Jim Walls.
7: I am uh, Jim Walls. I'm uh, 76 years of age, have a son, Peter, and two grandsons, uh, Ben and Matt. And my wife was taken away by an aneurysm in 2012. I've since remarried. My wife's name now is Linda. She's delightful and has uh, four grandchildren.
5: For Jim, despite the tragedy of his wife's death... The decision to participate in the GTEx programme was not that difficult.
7: Well, my wife years ago said that she was already uh, a part of a donor programme, kidneys, heart, lungs, whatever body part uh, that could be used uh, to restore other people's lives. uh, She was a willing donor. And so it was a very simple step to accept the request of becoming a tissue donor for research. At the time,
5: Jim tells me, he only had a vague idea of what the tissue samples might be used for. Since then, he's been involved in helping researchers consider the ethical implications of how potential donor families are first approached. This was actually one of the big concerns when the project was first getting underway.
8: So I think there has always been a lot of excitement about the scientific goals, but of course in the early days there was also a lot of uncertainty of if this is actually going to work.
5: This is Tuli Lappelenin who was a postdoc when she first got involved with GTEx in 2011.
8: A project of this scale had not been done before, so there was the sort of big questions of, of that kind of data quality and also uh, how easy would it be to recruit close to a 1,000 donors? Will people consent to these things? Will people want to uh, donate tissues from when, when their loved one has just, just diseased? But luckily it became clear quite quickly that this is, this is actually going to work.
5: And work it did – The papers being published this week only represent the first half of the final data set from around 450 donors, but there are already fascinating associations being uncovered between genes, gene expression and disease, which could help researchers figure out the cellular processes involved in various conditions. And the data from the GTEx project is being made available to scientists all over the world and from all sorts of fields.
8: There is probably thousands of researchers that are using the resource, all kinds of researchers actually. Here in the lab next door to mine, uh, they study uh, neurodegenerative disease and in particular ALS, and we are collaborating with them to use GTEx data from the brain and spinal cord as a reference so that we can compare uh, samples and data from individuals with ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease to the healthy uh, uh, donor data from GTEx.
5: The GTEx database will undoubtedly have a lot of value to researchers going forward. Other upcoming projects, like the Human Cell Atlas, will look at the interplay between genes and expression and disease in even more detail. But GTEx has also expanded frontiers in how scientists access this kind of sensitive data.
8: ChiTex is a bit of a unique project in the sense that the ChiChex uh, researchers have stayed in contact with many of the donor families and, and so discussed with them how they felt about the process and why did they decide to donate. So it's it's been really rewarding for a researcher to be able to see this side of the process because this, of course, none of GTEx would ever exist unless these people gave this hugely valuable, generous donation.
5: And while a tissue donation might not have as obvious an immediate impact as organ donation, the value of the data is clear, not just to the scientists, but to the families who have allowed this research to take place.
7: So I'm waiting for that discovery where these tissue samples say, QED, this causes Parkinson's disease and these genes cause it and this is how we remedy it. Boy, oh boy, that will be a glorious day.
0: That was Jim Walls finishing up that package, where you also heard from Thule Lapalainen and Ewan Calloway in a report from Sharmini Bundell. You can find out a lot more about GTEx in this week's Nature, with a news story, an editorial, a News and Views article, as well as all the papers.
4: Still to come in the research highlights, the sun's scorching atmosphere and the brain's waste disposal system. But now, for a number of years, exoplanets have been among the trendiest topics in astronomy. One of the easiest ways to spot an exoplanet is to look for the subtle dimming of a star's light as the planet passes between it and us. So far, thousands of exoplanets have been discovered. But this trick could also be useful to study objects in our own solar system. If astronomers wait patiently for objects in our solar system to cross in front of stars in the sky, it can reveal all sorts of information about that object. And now, a team have done exactly that for a dwarf planet called Haumea, orbiting the Sun beyond Neptune. José Luis Ortiz led the study and was also among the first to spot Haumea a little over a decade ago. I called him up and asked what we can learn from studying dwarf planets like Haumea.
2: These objects hold important clues on the formation of the solar system because they are the remnants of the formation of the solar system.
4: Now, these are objects within our solar system, but one of the approaches you use to look at them might sound familiar to people who've heard about exoplanet research.
2: Yeah, the technique is um, similar to, to, the, to the transit technique used for exoplanet science. And in, in this case, what we do is to... Uh, wait for uh, a planet or solar system object to pass in front of a star and uh, causing it an eclipse blocking its light sort of a transit which we can measure with our telescopes so we can uh, determine the length of time that the uh, star was occulted compared to its uh, planet transits Uh, these are very brief events because uh, Planet transits take one or a few hours, typically, but this is just a matter of a few seconds and maybe a minute.
4: For this technique, you don't just use one telescope, you use quite a few telescopes around the world, right?
2: Right. Usually we have uncertainties on where the the shadow of the uh, object falls on, on Earth. So we have to use several telescopes to make sure that we cover the exact uh, area of the world where, where this occultation is going to happen, but also we need to determine the length of the occultation from several sites on Earth so that we can project those uh, lines on the sky and then derive the exact shape of the body.
4: Does it take a lot of planning for one of these eclipses? How often does it happen that a dwarf planet or any other object out there happens to eclipse a star?
2: Yeah, it takes a lot of planning because it usually um, this happens maybe one, two or three times uh, per year. So it's really challenging.
4: In this study, you were specifically looking at a dwarf planet called Haumea found a little over a decade ago. What was already known about this dwarf planet?
2: Well, we knew quite a lot of things. For instance, um, we knew that it spins very quickly and it rotates around its axis in in less than four hours. We knew that Haumea was uh, highly non-spherical. It has uh, a shape which might be similar to uh, a melon or also a a rugby ball. And we we knew quite a lot of things, uh, but uh, some of the important stuff was not really well known. For instance, the density. So
4: um, we needed to improve on that. So there were some things we knew about this little dwarf planet, some things we didn't. So you set out to use this. Approach where it eclipses a star, and what did what did your team find out using this technique?
2: We found out that the the size of Haumea is bigger than we thought uh, it would be, so Haumea turned out to be uh, less dense. So this is important, but probably the most remarkable finding from our investigation was the fact that Haumea has a ring uh, revolving around and this was quite a surprise because we were not expecting to find a, a ring system around
4: dwarf planet. You mentioned that studying objects like Haumea tells us something about the early solar system. Does Haumea specifically tell us anything about where the solar system came from and what its origins were?
2: The uh, fact that Haumea has a ring can tell us about the collisional uh, scenarios and the collisional processes that took place in the early uh, phases of the solar system because the ring could have been caused by collisions with Haumea. But this is uh, currently uh, a speculation because so far we cannot really tell what the uh, origin of the ring
4: is how do you feel when you do studies like this that there's so much coordination involved but there's this i suppose potential to find out some quite fundamental things
2: yeah it's it's such a huge effort that we get nervous excited and <laughs> and it's a lot of fun when you finally found something interesting sometimes uh, we, we have failed and, and that is also sad <laughs> But fortunately, in this case, uh, we had a huge success and we were very excited.
4: That was José Luis Ortiz, who's at the Institute of Astrophysics at the CSIC in Andalusia in Spain. Check out his paper in the usual place.
0: Later in the show, we're looking at mouse avatars and an upcoming battle between publishers and ResearchGate. That's in the news chat. But now, we're joined by the newest member of the Nature Podcast team, Benjamin Thompson, for this week's research highlights.
3: The sun's surface is a toasty 5,500 degrees Celsius. Strangely, it seems that its own atmosphere is even hotter. The corona can in fact be several million degrees hotter. Gigantic solar flares release a lot of energy from the surface, but they're too rare to explain the corona's excessive heat. Now... X-ray observations of parts of the Sun hint at a plethora of tiny plasma pulses reaching a roasting 10 million degrees. These fleeting nano-flares, which when undetected by regular satellite imaging, could explain the corona's colossal heat. Hot-foot it over to Nature Astronomy to read the full paper. The brain's waste disposal system has been observed in humans for the first time. Lymphatic vessels, which carry waste products away from damaged tissues, were first hypothesized 200 years ago, but weren't actually seen in brains until 2015, and that was in mice. In the new work, researchers were using magnetic dye to study blood vessels in the brains of healthy human volunteers in an MRI scanner. The dye leaked into a neighboring network, illuminating the camera-shy lymph vessels. Tweaking the dye molecules to dim the blood vessel signals enabled the first snapshot of these discrete drainpipes. This technique could help study neurological disorders where waste products might not be suitably flushed away. Scan the full paper over at eLife.
0: This year commemorates the 40th anniversary of DNA sequencing, a technique that has transformed biology. Reporter Anand Jagatia takes a look at how far we've come in that time and what the future of DNA sequencing might hold.
9: A, T, C and G – letters that represent the base pairs which code for life on Earth – DNA. The earliest attempts to read this sequence of letters in DNA molecules were painfully slow. In 1973, it took researchers two years to sequence the gene for a binding site that was a mere 24 bases long. But then, 40 years ago in 1977, two papers were published that gave methods for DNA sequencing allowing researchers to read hundreds of bases in an afternoon. Since then, sequencing technology has improved at an incredible pace, becoming faster, more reliable, and less expensive. And today, the latest generation of machines can sequence an entire human genome, that's three billion bases, in just one hour.
1: Really, over the past decade or so, we've essentially reduced the cost of sequencing DNA by about a million-fold. And that has just changed everything in terms of what you can use DNA sequencing for. This is
9: Dr Eric Green, director of the US National Human Genome Research Institute at the US National Institutes of Health. Eric has been working in genomics since 1987 and was involved with the Human Genome Project throughout its duration. He told me that it's hard to think of an area where DNA sequencing has had a bigger impact than in health and medicine.
1: Well, in terms of sheer numbers, the most widespread clinical application have been in the arena of prenatal genetic testing for um, abnormal numbers of chromosomes, such as trisomy 21, three copies of chromosome 21, which causes Down syndrome. Um, This is a practice that's been going on for many, many years, um, but has previously required invasive methods to access fetal DNA. But these new DNA sequencing technologies are so exquisitely sensitive that they now allow the detection of the small amounts of fetal DNA that float around in in the maternal bloodstream, in mom's blood. In fact, it's now estimated that something on the order of 4 to 6 million women who are pregnant will get that test worldwide each year, at least now, and it's expected to grow over time.
9: This growth in prenatal testing isn't the only change in how we do medicine. DNA sequencing has also transformed the diagnosis and treatment of cancer.
1: Cancer is a disease of the genome, and so we can use these new methods to sequence uh, the genome of a tumour, of a cancer sample, and tailor the care of that patient with that cancer based on what you learn, um, and that will help guide um, many aspects of the patient's care. Another exciting development, um, especially looking towards the future, is something that's referred to as liquid biopsies. In other words, if a patient has cancer, their tumor often will shed small amounts of its DNA, which has some abnormal signatures in it, into the bloodstream. And so one is now able to sequence the DNA in the blood looking for signatures of cancer.
9: In the research arena, as the technology behind DNA sequencing has improved, scientists have become increasingly hungry for sequence data. The Human Genome Project successfully sampled the first human genome in 2003, and since then researchers have gone on to complete the 1,000 Genome Project and are soon set to finish the 100,000 Genomes Project. But generating such vast amounts of sequence data has its problems.
1: We are now able to generate prodigious amounts of DNA sequence data, and then we immediately hit a blockade of being able to interpret it and understand it as effectively as we're able to generate it. We need very large data sets, not just their genome sequence. We need to know many other aspects of their lives to tease out all the complexities of human health and disease, which, of course, is a choreography between our genome, I mean our blueprint, but also our lifestyle, our environmental exposures, our social context and so forth.
9: But it's not just in the lab or the clinic that DNA sequencing has changed things. Smaller, cheaper devices have democratized sequencing technology, meaning it's no longer just big, rich labs who can use it.
1: There are instruments that are coming online now that can be uh, basically operated with a laptop out in the field to basically look for certain types of microbes. And increasingly, one can imagine as more mobile devices become available and the prices go down, maybe people in the food industry will be monitoring uh, specific foods by DNA analysis and so forth. One can imagine using it in your home. There may be applications where you want to read out some DNA in your home for various uh, personal reasons.
9: These reasons could be very personal indeed. Perhaps you'd have a DNA sequencer installed in your toilet to monitor the health of you and your family in real time. And according to Eric, this could just be the tip of the iceberg.
1: What is very clear is that we probably can't accurately predict all the applications for DNA sequencing in the future. One of the analogies I sometimes make is a smartphone. I mean, I never anticipated 10 years ago all the different ways I'd be using a smartphone. I thought it was just going to be used for phone calls. Now I barely use my smartphone uh, for phone calls. I use it for all sorts of other things. I think we're already seeing a similar circumstance with DNA sequencing.
0: Dr. Eric Green from the U.S. National Institutes of Health talking to Anand Jagatia. You can read a comment on the future of DNA sequencing technology at nature.com forward slash news. And there's also a review paper that looks back over the past 40 years of sequencing.
4: Time now for this week's news chat and Nature's new European Bureau Chief, Alison Goddard, joins us in the studio. Welcome, Alison. Hello. So first up, there's been a new look at something called mouse Avatars. Now, before we get to what this new study is showing, what what is a mouse avatar?
10: I'm afraid it's rather a grim thing, but it's a mouse which has been um, edited, has been sort of uh, interfered with in order to mimic a uh, human. So that diseases which uh, occur in humans can be implanted into the mouse, and their development can then be studied, in the hope that that will then treat disease in humans.
4: So, what kind of diseases are we often looking at for these kind of studies?
10: Uh, well, in this particular case, it's cancer. So, you have many, many different forms of cancer, and um, what researchers are doing is removing the cancer from a human being, implanting it into a mouse that's been—it's uh, had its immune system knocked out. And then just watching how that that cancer develops in the mouse and then you know, using that information then to tailor the treatment which is given to the human patient.
4: It seems like something where there might be some issues. Well, firstly, a mouse is not a human. Secondly, getting rid of the immune system in this way might cause other issues. Were there already concerns that this might not match up?
10: There are always concerns with using animals in these sort of experiments, um, Clearly, it's an imperfect model, Uh, but it is also a better model than not having a model. But yes, I mean, there are longstanding concerns with using animals in research. And um, this paper is identifying another one, which is that... uh, it may be that um, by implanting the human cancer into the mouse, the cancer is developing in a different way in the mouse than it would do in the human, and that's what this this paper is raising.
4: So what actually was the discrepancy between tumour development that they saw between these mouse models and between what we'd see in human patients? So
10: in humans uh, who've got brain cancer, the tumours uh, tend to gain extra copies of chromosome 7 Left untreated, if those uh, human brain tumours are planted into mice, the the mice lose those extra chromosome 7s. So, this, yeah, that's, that's a discrepancy between the, the mouse model and what would happen in a human being.
4: Is this difference something that completely derails this approach, or are people saying they're still going to use it and it's still a useful thing?
10: Uh, no, it absolutely doesn't derail uh, this, this area of research. I mean, it does you know, raise a question mark, um, but you know, others are you know, confident that uh, the, the, the mouse model, though it's not perfect, it's
4: still useful. Well, one tool that is certainly useful for researchers across the board is the online website ResearchGate. Uh, It's a very popular tool, uh, not least for avoiding paywalls so that people uh, can often read papers which otherwise they might have to pay for. Perhaps... Unsurprisingly, some organisations are quite unhappy about articles being posted there.
10: Yes, and I should say at the outset that clearly I'm employed by Springer Nature. And I also would like to say at the outset that um, Springer Nature is a big publisher of journals. However, the Nature editorial line is very much independent of Springer Nature. So I just want to sort of clarify that at the outset. (laughs) So, yes. So, uh, ResearchGate, it's a big uh, publisher of um, papers. It's based in Berlin. It's got 3 million members and has raised more than $80 million um, from investors, including Microsoft founder Bill Gates and the Wellcome Trust, which is a big UK-based biomedical researcher.
4: So, very big organisation, but they've now got... Some, I suppose, quite powerful enemies.
10: Yes. So what has happened, and it's been a long time coming, but what has happened is that five publishers have now formed a consortium and they say they are about to imminently send out a batch of takedown notices to ResearchGate, asking them to remove uh, some of the 100,000 articles which are currently on the site for reasons of copyright infringement,
4: a hundred thousand is a huge number of articles. Do we have any idea what kind of percentage might be infringing on some form of copyright?
10: Nobody's gone through them, you know, line by line individually. But a spokesperson for the Coalition of Publishers has estimated that about forty percent of the papers could be in breach of of copyright.
4: Is there any room for some kind of compromise for this or is it just ResearchGate want to post these things and uh, these publishers don't want them to be posted?
10: I think there always has to be room for compromise, doesn't there? Um, So Springer Nature at least has said that it's in, has been in serious discussions for some time about sharing journal articles with ResearchGate.
4: Is it actually ResearchGate that is breaching copyright in this case or is it? the people who are using it, who are posting these things?
10: So ResearchGate sees itself as a platform and says that it doesn't want people to upload papers for which they don't own the copyright. However, it isn't individually checking what's going on on the site and so the publishers are saying that actually they need to take more responsibility for what's published.
4: When do we expect that this will all come to a head? When, When will legal action formally be taken?
10: We've been asking the Coalition on a more than daily basis and the answer is always imminently.
4: Alison Goddard, thank you very much for joining us. For more on those two news stories, go to nature.com forward slash news. That's all for
0: this week. But if you haven't already, make sure to check out last week's podcast extra. To celebrate our 500th episode, it features eight podcast contributors introducing their favourite pieces since the start of the show, including one of my earliest segments from a full decade ago.
4: Give it a listen at nature.com forward slash nature forward slash podcast or on your favourite podcasting app. I'm Adam Levy.
0: And I'm Charlotte Stoddart.